Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to the show. This is your host, Auntie Vice. I am here today with an amazing writer. I discovered them through their memoir, Hijab Butch Blues, which the title alone drew me in and I had to read. And it's been billed as one of the, the top memoirs to read in 2023. And it really is. They're a phenomenal writer. They were a fellow with Lambda Literary. They're a writer in and activist. And we're going to get into all of that. Welcome to the show. Uh, oh, I should say their name, Lamia H. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So, you know, I want to start, people say you can't judge a book by its cover, but honestly, your title alone was enough to make me buy the book. So, mm. For folks who may not know the reference in that, do you want to talk where your title comes from? Yeah. Um, so uh, the book is a memoir, and um, it's it's my first book, uh, which was you know exciting and terrifying as I was writing it. And the book uh, the book is a retelling of stories from the Quran as uh, sort of like queer brown immigrant narratives, uh, and alongside I intersperse stories from my queer brown immigrant life. And so when it came to titling this book, and in fact, it, when it came to sort of like what I was trying to do with this book, I thought a lot about just like my queer literary ancestors, just people who had written books before me who made it possible um, for me to write this book. Um, and in some ways, it, who made it possible for me to live this life. And uh, the one person that I kept coming back to over and over was Leslie Feinberg's, um, and especially the book Stonebush Blues, which I read in my 20s. And it was just such a phenomenal piece of literature and like so um instrumental for me in finding my literary voice um because that book is just like it, it's it's incredible it's um this very very personal story it's fiction um about uh this person who is navigating um all of these uh intersecting identities um but what i love about the book is that it's so effortless in the way that it um, but it like describes, uh, the way that these identities operate. So the, the narrator is, um, is trans, um, queer, um, just dealing with a lot of sort of like class issues, um, race, gender, et cetera. What I love about that book is that it tells these really, really personal stories, but that the stories themselves make really huge political points. Um, and that's, that's what I wanted to do in my book. Um, I wanted to tell these stories from my life, but I didn't want those. I, I didn't want it to be just this, um, this work that's, that's, that's telling these stories. I wanted the stories to, um, make bigger arguments and point to issues and various sort of like various, um, injustices and oppression, um, that are present in society. And so, for me, the title is an homage to where I learned how to do that, um, which is in Leslie Feinberg's, Feinberg's uh, Stone Butch Blues. Um, and so um, when it came to titling my book, I I found that I really wanted to go with Hijab Butch Blues um, so I could really sort of like honor the place where I learned to do that. It's a wonderful book. For our listeners, I'll have a link up in the show notes to, to Leslie's book. It, and it's a beautiful work in terms of writing as well as the story 
itself, as is yours. Did you have other major memoirists that you drew mm. on when you were writing this? Yeah, another uh, another work that was like really instrumental um, in my writing was um, Audrey Lord's Zami, which again really taught me that you could uh, write books that you could write books that are both personal and tell like bigger stories. Um, so uh, Audrey Lord was this black lesbian poet slash writer um, slash activist slash organizer, um, and uh, just. I feel like I came to her work late in my life. Um, I wish I had had it in my sort of like teenage years, my um, early, I wish I just had it in my teenage years, but I came to it in my early 20s. And um, for me, it it really changed um, how I think about the ways in which my identities work and the ways that they intersect with each other. So that was a, a really huge influence. Um, and apart from that, I, I read a lot of fiction. Other sort of like queer writers that, uh, that I've really, really enjoyed reading, um, are Dorothy Allison, who writes with this like incredible, uh, sensitivity, um, and nuance around place and geographies, uh, which is also something that I wanted to do in my book. Um, just really sort of describe some of the places that I come from. And I, I don't name the countries where I, where I came from, um, and where I've lived because of anonymity, but I really wanted to convey a sense of place. So I feel like I learned a lot of those things from Dorothy Allison's, um, Bastard Out of Carolina, Cape Dwellers, et cetera. Yeah, those are phenomenal books. And bringing those up, I can see how those styles influenced mm. yours. One of the things I loved about Hijab Butch Blues is you intersperse stories from the Quran into the work and really how much of that is steeped in who you are and how you understand the world. And it's a very unique structure in terms of memoirs. I've mm. seen very few that, even of religious figures, who really intersperse so much uh, of the canonical material into that. And I know you've talked about this on other shows, but for our listeners who aren't familiar, do you want to give folks a little idea of where that idea came from? Because it's very original. Uh, thank you for saying that. I mean, so for me, all of these stories from the Quran have just like been such a huge part of my life, just in terms of um, I've, I've always been surrounded by these stories, you know, in Quran class in school or in sermons or um, just even sort of, you know, like kids coloring books, like we, I think we had a, we had a kids coloring book with like stories from the Quran. And so they've always been such a big part of my life, just in terms of hearing these stories over and over. And so for me, the characters were just always like ever present. And I, you know, I, I grew up reading a lot. Um, I didn't grow up writing, um, but I definitely grew up reading a lot. And I feel like some of the some of the skills that I learned from reading, you know, in particular, sort of like empathizing with the character and really sort of delving into their inner narrations and thinking through what decisions they made and why. And, you know, just really thinking of characters as like really flawed and messy and beautiful and human. I feel like I, I have always been bringing that sort of analysis to these characters and stories from the Quran as well. For me, it just, it felt really effortless to, um, to, to write some of these essays because, uh, it felt like these were stories that I had been thinking about my whole life. And these were lenses and characters that had sort of just been present, uh, throughout my life. Um, I'm not saying that the writing process was easy because writing is never easy. And anyone who tells you that, any, anyone who tells you otherwise is definitely lying. To me, the the sort of like configuring of these stories and the thinking of these stories um, of uh, these figures in the Quran alongside my life that that felt um, that felt like a natural extension of what I had been doing in my head, pretty much my whole life. And and that makes a lot of sense as somebody who grew up in a very religious home. Mm -hmm. You you're very surrounded by by all of these stories and how they're supposed to guide your life. One yeah. of the things that really jumped jumped out at me, and it's something that's come up in my my own life, and well, also with folks that I coach um, around sexuality, is your conception of God's gender. 
Mm. And very early on in the book, you introduced the question of why do we use male pronouns for Allah? And it occasionally comes up in Christian theology, but mm. not nearly as frequent as I've seen it in discussions around Islam. Mm. What made you originally start to question why we call why we use male pronouns for a deity? You know, um, it's funny because even sort of like the most like orthodox and like traditional Muslims I know will just be like, God has no gender, God has no gender, God has no gender. And so I, I just like, I remember early on um, being a kid and just being like, well, if God has no gender, then why do people continue to use he? Um, and, you know, this is something that I write about in my in my book too. Um, I, I also feel like there was this shift when um, maybe like 10, 15 years ago when people started using she, which I think for, for God, um, which I think is also an interesting choice because it, it doesn't, I, I understand why people do it. And I understand that it's to sort of like undo some of the pervasiveness of he, but there's something about that that doesn't sit quite right with me either, because if God doesn't have a gender, then using he or she is actually just sort of like, reinforcing the gender binary in some ways. Um, and so it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And especially as I've come into my non-binariness, um, you know, that, that, that definitely isn't a phrase that was around when I was younger, um, when I was in my teens and my early twenties, like people just didn't use the term non-binary. Um, people use the term genderqueer or, um, there were, there were some people who were starting to use gender non-conforming, um, agender, et cetera. But this term non-binary, um, was definitely something that I, uh, feel like I had to grow into, um, for myself. Um, and as, as I did, I, to me, it feels like, to me, it feels like God falls under that category too, because, because there's this way in which God is beyond gender. And, you know, it's really interesting because, um, you're not supposed to read, um, you know, the, mean comments on Goodreads, but I do. Um, and so this is something that people find very upsetting um, to talk about God as trans or God as non-binary. Um, but I don't know, I just think that there's there's something there in terms of sort of like the expansiveness of gender um, and the, the sort of like transcending of gender. Um, and I don't know, I, I think... I think that there are threads of that in Muslimness. Um, there, there's so many, there's so many people who already talk about that. Yeah. And so to me, it, it doesn't feel like a big leap, uh, to use those words for God. Um, and I hope more people do because I think it contributes to an expansiveness of God and an expansiveness of love for other humans. And it, for me, it was very reminiscent of book, Your God is Too Small. Mm. And the idea I don't of, know that word. Like, yeah. Just how, for most people, whatever religion you, you're in, we try to get God to reflect something that we can understand in the human experience. Mm. So for me, reducing a deity to, their, to a binary gender mm. just seems to, to shrink the mm. enormity of God. Mm. Um, I, I really love that. Yeah. And you talk about how in the Quran, there's these 99, you know, names for God and it's just, God gives language and it's expansive and it's the same in, in Christian doctrine. God gives language and I am, you know, I am he, I am all I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning mm. and the end. And I've mm. always been here. And so it was very reminiscent of that. You talk about in the book uh, times where you brought up using gender terms, and there's one where you are at a party with a bunch of other women in New York, mm. and uh, you know a cousin starts referring to God as a she, and you have this very strong reaction to it. And most of the others were pretending like they mm. couldn't really hear the conversation. Right. Have you since found groups within? Mm 
your denomination where you can connect and where there is more openness to exploring the idea of God being bigger than a binary gender? Yeah, um, I mean, I was so lucky to find queer com- queer Muslim community um, in New York. And in some ways, I think finding finding queer Muslim community like really saved me. Uh, it saved me both in terms of queerness and in terms of Muslimness and also queer Muslimness. Um, yeah, I just I I was lucky enough to um, to find people. And I don't know, there's this way in which uh queer muslims like tend to know each other and so like once you know one person you know it kind of snowballs um and yeah that just finding that community of people who are also thinking about these questions and who are also you know questioning the the pronouns that we use for god um and who are like who are also questioning like how do you live a life that honors both your queerness and your muslimness um and how do you how do you sort of like think and read the Quran in ways that feel expansive um, and that don't conform to traditional interpretations, but that really sort of like look at the Quran through the lens of social justice and through the lens of your own life. Um, yeah, I feel like I was I was so lucky to find people um, to be able to engage in that sort of like reinterpretive uh, exercise with. Um, I remember one Ramadan um uh, a few of our friends, a few of my friends from this community, we were like, cool, let's, let's read the Quran every day. Um, and, you know, it didn't actually pan out where we read it every day. We tried to read it every day, but, you know, these, these things, uh, are never quite what you want them to be on the first day when you're so gung ho and have all this energy. But what was really cool about that exercise is that, um, yeah, it was the first time really that I was around so many people who wanted to engage in this sort of, um, exercise of, of just like really thinking through what the text could mean, um, what, what, yeah, what, what it could mean and what, um, what value it brought to our lives. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was really cool. It was a really cool experience because we would get together and we would sort of like, randomly open the Quran and read maybe like five to 10 verses and just really sit with them, journal about them and then talk about them um, together. Yeah, it was it was one of the coolest experiences of my life. Um, And from that, uh, another sort of like interpretive exercise that I've been engaged in is um, I've been reading the Quran with my friend. It's, which I talk about in an essay, uh, towards the end of the book. I won't, I won't do any spoilers. Um, but, uh, I have this friend and the two of us have been trying to read the Quran for, I, I mean, it's been about like seven years now, which is really sad to say because when we started reading it, we were like, okay, we are going to do this. We're going to like finish it in like five years. We're going to read you know 10 pages every week we can do this and you know life got in the way and so it's been slower it's it's been really cool to read with her and also to read with her um and see both like how our how our relationship to the quran has changed over this time and also how our relationship to each other has changed over this time um i feel like reading the quran together um has just really uh deepened our friendship and has really allowed us to be able to talk about some really hard things. That's phenomenal. And to have somebody to walk through that with is is fantastic. You bring up being queer, being Muslim, and being queer Muslim, which again, I think is one of those more nuanced identity conversations that Mm. often get lost in people talking about identity writ large. So let's start with, with Muslim identity. So mm. for you, you've you've had the joy of living in multiple countries. You were you you know went to school in international schools in Southeast Asia. How has your understanding of what it means to be Muslim changed as you've changed location? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, so, oh wow that 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 is a really really good question. Um, you know. I 
So geography is one thing. And also I think like age is one thing. Um, so I was born in um, South Asia and I grew up in the Middle East. Um, and I was there until I was 17. And then I moved to the US for college. And I've been here ever since. Um, and it's so interesting because there's this way in which I went from a setting where Muslimness was the default. So, uh, where I grew up in the Middle East, like most people were Muslim and most of the people I was surrounded by in this international school were Muslim. You know, we, uh, went to Quran class. We read, um, we read and sort of like, uh, we read the Quran in school. Um, and there's this way in which there's this way in which it was the default to moving to the US when suddenly it wasn't the default and there are ways in which there are ways in which my muslimness almost had to like crystallize and i had to like think through what parts of it were really important to me um and what parts really really resonated with me um and what parts uh, didn't um, and I think some of that also comes with just age and just growing older. I feel like, um, when I was, when I was a teenager, um, when I was younger, um, a lot of my thinking was like really black and white. And I feel like a lot of the messiness of it that's in between that, all of the grays and all of the color, um, I, I feel like I really came into that in my, uh, late teens, um, early twenties, uh, college, and then just being out of college and being around a lot of other people, um, some of who were Muslim, some of who were not people who were engaging with their Muslimness in different ways. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know, like some of it is geography just in terms of what was the default and what was not. Um, and some of it I think is also just age and just, just being around people and being a person in the world and, growing up in some ways and being comfortable with the, the lack of black and white um, and just being really comfortable with the messiness and um, the humanness and the texture that um, that uh, that that kind of sort of like expansive approach to Islam affords. If you want to find a place with a lot of messiness around Islam and accepting Muslims, it's New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? New York, it's, well, the U.S. has, has its fair, you know, is steeped in xenophobia and white supremacy. New York is really interesting. I was there several years before until several years after 9 11. Mm. And the, the visibility of the Muslim community really changed and the way the city reacts to it and you have a few stories in your book about just the way that that changed how you move through the world Mm. in the last 10 years or so what have you noticed about moving through the world especially as someone who wears hijab you know, I, I love New York. Um, it's, I, I think it's the best city in the world and I hope to never leave. Um, and I feel like it's, it's a city that feels both, both like sort of effortly diverse and also very, um, un-American in this particular way. Like it just feels like, it, it feels like, like actually sort of like, yeah, it, it, it feels like, yeah, it feels like effortlessly diverse and rich, um, in ways that I find really beautiful. Um, uh, but you know, I also came of age in New York when a lot of the NYPD surveillance, um, stuff was being revealed, um, where the NYPD was surveilling Muslim communities, um, and also just sort of like Muslim student associations, um, sending all of these informants um, who would befriend, um, you know, just college kids um, and try to sort of like embroil them in things. So just I, yeah, I, I feel like I I have a complicated relationship with that aspect of New York. Uh, but yeah, there's this sort of like beauty to the city and the ways in which the ways in which it sort of like responds to things. Um, I'm thinking particularly about the, the Muslim ban that happened under Trump, um, where, uh, where people from six countries of which I believe four were Muslim majority countries were just, just like 
banned um, from coming um, into the US. And it, it's so funny, because I feel like I need to clarify what that is, because I, I'm not sure that everyone remembers that, which is so like crazy to think about that, you know, this was, this happened in 2017. And yeah, just the fact that I have to clarify what I mean by the Muslim ban. So yeah, um, I don't know, there, there are these ways in which there are these ways in which like moving through the world as someone who wears hijab is so hard. Um, and you know, it's interesting because one of the things that I've started to do more often is, um, wear a hat hijab, like either a beanie or, or like a backwards baseball cap. Uh, and you know, sometimes look, I, I wear those sometimes and sometimes I still wear like a scarf hijab, uh, which, you know, is read more readily as sort of like Muslim. Um, and the ways in which I feel like I'm treated based on what I'm wearing and the ways in which sort of like I, I feel fear in my body based on what I'm wearing feels so markedly different. And, and a big part of it is because we carry sort of like all of these things that have happened, like, you know, like the surveillance thing or the Muslim ban or um, the various times that people have yelled things at me um, that are just very distinctly Islamophobic. Um, we carry all of those things um, in us. And yeah, it's so interesting to see how that shifts based on how I'm wearing my hijab. Well, and hijab is often almost exclusively read as female. Mm -hmm. so, so when you're wearing traditional scarf hijab versus some of these alternative forms, how do you feel gender in your own body? Um, that's a really good question. You know, um, the, for a very long time, I struggled with using the word non-binary. Non and part of that was because... Um, there was this way in which I felt like wearing like a scarf hijab like feminized me. And so it felt like I didn't have I, I wasn't like worthy of that term, which I know like now I say it aloud and I'm like, oh, my God, that is so fucked up. And like, just like, just what? That's such a sort of like non-expansive way of thinking about gender. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's this way in which um, wearing a scarf hijab is just like seen as particularly feminine um but you know you know what i love is that like kids these days um are really like pushing back against that there are all of these tiktoks about sort of like mask hijabis and like the their sort of like dressing style and the ways in which they feel comfortable expressing their gender while wearing just like again like a very traditional looking hijab and so i feel like really inspired by that there's a thoughtfulness there, um, and, uh, and, and an expansiveness, and an expansiveness there that I really wish that I had, um, access to when I was younger. I, for our listener, I'll put a link up. My entree into that world on TikTok is a drag queen who mm. wears hijab as the, the, and that's all the Disney princesses, but in some oh. way, it's a job and it, so beautiful and so genderqueer and yeah oh so I'll, I'll do, it, it's a fantastic rabbit hole to go down that is so cool okay I'm really excited to see this yeah so for you what what does non-binary mean we're still working as a culture to define it so what is it for you that's a really great question um so, you know, I used to use the word genderqueer a lot, um, and I still do. Um, and recently I saw this thread on Twitter, which I can also link to, um, about sort of like the shades of nuance between those two words. And, um, if I remember correctly, I don't want to butcher it. Um, but basically the idea of genderqueer was to, was this sort of like mixing and matching, uh, mask and femme, um, and sort of like beyond uh, those terms too, and just like really playing with, playing with like being, uh, playing with things like androgyny and playing with uh, sort of like mixing and matching um, various sort of like extremes of that spectrum. But what I thought was really cool and nuanced was that this idea of non-binary as sort of being um, like almost like beyond gender in a way um, that 
even if you present as mostly mask or mostly femme or androgynous or wherever on the spectrum, there should not be an ascribing of of sort of like gender without sort of like asking pronouns. Does that make sense? I feel like I, I I feel like I didn't do a great job. This person did a much more amazing job of sort of like really breaking down that distinction. But for me, as someone who identifies as both, what what I would like to see is more sort of like playing with gender um, and more sort of like, yeah, more like playfulness and joy um, around how how one wears their body and also this uh bigger sort of like political project of sort of like divorcing an an assigned sex from um from how one is read and perceived i i think you did a clear job on it then again i've been so steeped in this conversation Mm. for so long sometimes Mm. i lose my moorings to what Mm. people new to the conversation will um but speaking of new to the conversation there's a you have a very short story about talking to your six-year-old niece Mm. about what gender is when she gives you the picture of of you and then she writes girl on it yeah yeah and her parents response was we don't need this feminist indoctrination at her age <laughs> without recognizing the indoctrination they're doing. Oh my God, yes. So now there's this huge discussion over how we teach about gender in school and mm. trans kids in school. And, you know, basically we have a lot of terrified parents who don't understand this and they're they're convinced, you know, us us. Queer non-binary folks are going to warp their children. Uh, mm. But you grew up in a world where it wasn't even an option. I grew up in a world where we didn't have any of this terminology and we mm. still came out as as mm. queer. So what would you want parents and, and all of these deeply concerned citizens to know about how we talk about gender and why it's important to have these conversations with younger folks? Oh my God, that is such a good question. And you know, like, honestly, not one that I'm in a position to answer. What would I tell parents? Um, You know, I don't know. I think, I think, I think it's really important to recognize um, a lot of what you're saying, which is that all kids are constantly indoctrinated. Like gender is so pervasive in that way, just in terms of like, the way that people talk to babies, um, the way that, the way that, you know, uh, yeah, the way that, the, the way that like they're like kids are assumed to have a certain gender, et cetera. Um, it's so pervasive. Um, and I feel like, I don't know. I feel like if there was more sort of like room to play with those things, um, I think that that would just make the world a better place. I'm sorry. I don't really have a good answer for this question. It's so good. But when you figure out the answer to this question, can you please let me know? Because I have a baby and I just like, you know, I really want to do this right by her. I Yeah, it's it's tricky because I'm, I'm fighting school boards out here, but I also have a 10-year-old nephew. Mm. And his parents are Muslim and his father's very traditional and very traditional gender roles and Mm. mom is not. And so when Auntie B shows up, Auntie B gets to confuse the whole pot. And I don't know (laughs) if he'll send him into therapy or not. But right now he just knows there's mom, there's dad, and then there's Auntie B's way, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You know, it's really interesting because I feel like I've been talking to my cousins um, about uh gender and um feminist indoctrination um for a very long time and now they're they're much older they're um 15 and 18 and it, it's really interesting to see that it has made an impact like all these times that I thought I was just sort of like saying things and they were like uh-huh uh-huh they were like actually listening um so yeah I I, I love that I love that for your nephew I love that for um for all the kids that you're around yeah it's <laughs> Some of it, I think, is just seeing 
different alternatives. Mm. Um, you know, you talk about in the book, not seeing queerness, not seeing non-binary as anything that was an option for you. Mm-hmm. And you coming into your queerness is a whole journey in and of itself. So do you want to talk a little bit about what it was like to discover that people were queer and could stand in their own queerness without being mm-hmm. deeply ashamed and all of that and how that started to impact your own journey? I feel like a lot of that happened again when I found a queer Muslim community. Um, I don't know. It just, before I had found people, it just felt like these were like arbitrary things and they were, and they were like things, but they were like, sort of just like floating in the ether and I was trying to grasp at them. Um, but it wasn't until I found people who were really living their lives um, and being sort of like messy, um, but like figuring out how to how to be queer and Muslim. Um, it wasn't until I met these people. And, and you know, the, the funny thing is that all of these people were living out their identities in very different ways. Like people were, you know, queer to different extents, Muslims, Muslim to different extents, Muslimish, um, etc. And I don't know, I feel like sometimes it's so hard to grow up without models. And especially as queer people, um, sometimes because there's so much sort of like, intergenerational like I don't know distance um it can feel really hard uh to find queer elders to be around to see other queer elders um to just know that people have survived and made it and are living their lives um and so for me it wasn't until I found people who were and you know it's really weird to to call them elders because they sometimes they would be like you know five ten years older than me um like my queer life mentor who I write about in the book, um, who, you know, was such a big part of um, my journey into sort of like, into figuring out how I, how I wanted to be a person in the world. Yeah. So yeah, to me, finding sort of like queer Muslim community and finding elders, finding people who were older than me, who were living their lives, um, that really, that that was a huge, huge part of my journey. In in the book, you write a lot about how people were telling you and you get unsolicited advice and on blogs of this is how you live as an authentic queer. Mm -hmm. And it did not resonate. And I started like jumping up and down. I'm like, yes, that, that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about, we have this concept and people push the concept of being authentically you, but Mm -hmm. we also still have gatekeepers that say, no, but if you're queer, you got to do this. If you're non-binary, you got to do this. Um, so for you, what does it, what is authenticity for you and what does that look like? I feel like this is something that I've really, really, really had to grapple with and really had to come into, but for me, and and it's going to sound really cheesy because it's so basic, but, but also sometimes the, the like really basic things are like, are so hard to arrive at because all of the messaging that you get is counter to that. Um, but for me, um, the authenticity part is just, um, living in a way that you feel comfortable with yourself and you feel like happy with yourself. Um, to me, I, I just found a lot of people who were very prescriptive about how I should live my queerness. Like, you know, just being out, you know, in a very like public and loud way or, or like coming out to my parents, just like all of these things or, or just like being, or even like being out at work, um, yeah. And, and a lot of those things were things that I really had to like grapple with and figure out for myself. And no one could tell me, no one could tell me what to do. And, and people's advice was also, was often like just very, very, it, it just like didn't take into account the context of my life. And so I feel like I really had to learn how to, how to have boundaries, how to, um, how to be comfortable with myself and also just like really listen to my gut when something felt bad. I feel like, I don't know, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like, I don't know, as 
as queer people, we aren't always the best at that because again, like we don't have models. We don't, we don't, we don't know to trust ourselves. Um, partially because society is telling us we're wrong. Um, but I feel like I really had to learn how to trust when something felt good and when something didn't feel good. And I had to trust, uh, to really sort of like, figure out why something didn't feel good and figure out what I was comfortable with and what I wasn't comfortable with. To me, that is authentic, an authentic queer life. And as you've come into this more authentic queer life, you've been doing a lot of writing. And it's not just the book. You have quite a few essays out about uh, being queer, being Muslim, the combination, being non-binary. Is that what you had envisioned for yourself as a kid? Is you would be speaking out on any of this? I never thought I would be a writer, real talk. Um, uh, the the education system that I was in specialized really early. And so I, I actually hadn't taken any sort of like creative writing or literature classes. Um, it wasn't until I got to like college and, you know, I was in like an intro freshman writing seminar situation and I was like oh wait what but uh yeah I definitely had not uh anticipated doing any of this um but the way that it came about was um I would tell stories all the time about sort of like things that I was angry at and um this one time my friend like heard me talk about some story and was like you know um what you say, like the, the anger sort of like dissipates if you don't write it down and if you don't do anything with it. And so your telling of the story just doesn't really do anything. All it does is that it, um, it sort of like makes you feel better and then nothing happens. And it just, I, I, I really, really took that to heart. And I was like, Oh, okay. I think I can try this writing thing. Um, and you know, I had like journal, I had journaled a lot and I had, um, I, I read a lot as a kid and I still do as, as an adult. I read a lot. Um, and so to me, it, it, it felt like all of that was training for writing. Um, and I actually started writing essays. Like I started off, um, basically as an essayist in, you know, in, in kind of like the heyday of, um, uh, I would say creative nonfiction. There is this time, I would say probably in like, the like mid 2010s when a lot of places were publishing creative nonfiction um, and it felt like really possible to have an audience for telling uh, again like really personal stories that were making bigger that were making a bigger point um, and in some ways writing essays is so it, it's so sort of like directed and focused you know you you're you're writing like you know um, a thousand to two thousand words you're arguing a very specific point you're telling um, you're telling stories but you're sort of like moving your reader through um, a very specific short sequence um, and so I started writing essays um, and I found that I really really enjoyed it and I never ever ever thought that I would write a book um, and in fact um, I met my agent on Twitter and she was the one who was like oh you should write a book and I was like nah absolutely not I can write you know 2,000 words and it takes me like you know uh, four weeks to do that there's no way I'm writing a book yeah and then and then the book happened so uh, it's really interesting I, I always like I, I find it so fascinating that my agent knew before I did that I would write a book. So one of the things you write really well about in the book is your immigration experience. I don't think folks who haven't had to immigrate to the U.S. really understand the complexities and how stressful that is. So do you want to share mm -hmm. a little bit about that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, I think the first thing that I read about uh what the process of like getting a visa and crossing a border into the US um, on a visa. One of the first things that I read about that experience was um, by Riz Khan, who wrote this essay about that. And, you know, it, it struck me then that I had actually never heard anyone talk about this. Um, I remember having like my mind blown and being like, wow, this is something that I experience every time I go in and out of the country. Like, I'm so surprised. Like, how has no one talked about this um, and how 
how is it that all the that this is so surprising to people? Um, and so it was definitely something that I really, really wanted to write about. And again, like I'm someone with a lot of privilege when it comes to immigration. I came here on a student visa and then, you know, got a, a whole bunch of student visas um did went to grad school um and then and then was working and until so my i i've had a lot of privilege in terms of um visas and in terms of immigration but um that experience of crossing a border is just so harrowing and yeah it, it surprises me that people just don't understand what it's like the sort of like bureaucracy the waiting the like the like the the waiting and then the the deadlines and then the um making sure that all of your documents um are not expired so that you can apply for the next one just yeah i i really wanted to convey that in the book well and what i think a lot of people don't realize is to extend visas and to get certain types of of visas and and green cards and stuff there's a medical component to mm-hmm. it um which uh, especially for people who are are black and brown and the darker skinned you are and if you're born into an abfab body mm-hmm. the more traumatic that can be so you do a beautiful job of of relating what it's like but now identifying as queer and non-binary going through those experiences how has that changed or has it ever gotten any easier um no and i really hope to never go through it again um uh which is why i'm sometimes i'm like that's it i'm stuck this is where i'm going to live uh for the rest of my life um but yeah i think you know it's it's also really interesting looking at those forms um because you're sort of supposed to print them out and you know give them to your doctor to and and like it's not just any doctor it has to be one of the special uscis doctors um who fill it out um but if you look through some of the questions that are being asked they're really really invasive um like basically this this medical professional is being asked to to make a determination about whether or not you will be like in quote a burden on society um and so yeah there's this there's there's this way in which like people just aren't aware of that um and it's it's also really interesting because when you apply for a green card or when you apply for citizenship there are also all of these other questions that you have to answer um you have to answer sort of like yes or no to and a lot of them are things like oh uh have you ever been um have you ever i don't know engaged in like x y and z in quote criminal activity uh which like in and of itself is so fucked up but um some of the questions um ask if for example if you've ever visited anyone in prison which like it, it's just it blows my mind or like some of them are really innocuous like have you ever been part of a political group like what is what does that mean like like actually like what does that mean yeah and so there's this way in which like those are so harrowing and um if you've ever done an interview um with a USCIS person they they ask you those questions and they ask you to say yes or no to them and so yeah there are these ways in which um the immigrant experience is just like so visceral and so scary and um so nerve-wracking um and yeah i i wish that people talked about that more just the sort of like mundanities of that and, and i don't think you can underscore how physically terrifying it can be to sit there with mm-hmm. people you know who can do real physical harm if they don't like an answer to a question mm-hmm. yeah totally yeah 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 if our listeners want to check out your book if they want to find you online go ahead and plug your sites So I'm on Twitter and Instagram as uh at Lamia is angry um L A M Y A I S A N G R Y um I feel like it's a pretty good encapsulation of um something that I feel a lot anger and rage at the world and 
Uh, yeah, and my book is called Hijab Butch Blues. Um, please support an independent bookstore or your library um, if you're going to read it. Uh, some of my favorites in New York um, are Blue Stockings, um, uh, which is a bookstore that is a radical feminist bookstore, and it's one that I really love. Um, and then, of course, the New York Public Library, which is amazing. Um, yeah, those are my plugs. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. You've been a wonderful guest. Listeners will have all of those links and more. And if you liked this interview and haven't heard me chat with Leah Vernon, go check out uh, my interview with her on her autobiography called Unashamed Musings of a Fat Black Muslim. Thank you for tuning in. And now, a moment of gratitude. Oh, such a good question. I feel like I recently discovered uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream. Um, I, you know, just had been very uh, hesitant about the combination of mint and chocolate. And then I tried it recently and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, so that is something that I'm very grateful for right now. There's this one pint that I have in my freezer that I'm absolutely going to dig into after this interview, um, which has kind of like an oil crumbles sort of situation in the mint ice cream just it's so good it's so good hi listeners it's auntie vice here i want to invite you to join me and lamia h on january 17th on the discord channel the big queer book club for a discussion of hijab butch blues links to the discord chat will also be in the show notes Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.